Well, uh, we've been doing a little dive into the afterlife in recent weeks, um, <clears throat> and I'm going to wrap up this message series today with uh, a message which I'm calling Life After Life After Death. Life After Life After Death. If you've been around, if, if uh, you've been in church, uh, if you've been tracking along, I've been talking uh, pretty much about a two-stage eschatology. So there's uh, an eschatology of what happens to you immediately when you die. And then uh, there's an eschatology of the general resurrection and, and, and what comes after that, what happens after the resurrection. So we'll talk a bit more about that today. But um, when we die, just to recap, we will find ourselves in an intermediate state, um, uh, this in-between state. It's the, the state of a human soul between a person's physical death and their bodily resurrection. And when you read scripture, you'll find the words paradise and Hades, those two words, are often used uh, as terms to describe that intermediate state for different people. Uh, in our modern day world, we often use the words heaven and hell, and, and uh, we don't really think about the resurrection and what's going to come after that. Uh, so, uh, for people who who find themselves in the presence of God, right? If they die and they're in the presence of God, um, the Bible describes that state as paradise, uh, to be with Christ, being in Christ, the dead in Christ, right? Our our life being hidden in Christ, and then on the other side is is Hades, which is uh, some kind of negative state where you are not in the presence of Christ. But both paradise and Hades are an experience or a state. In, in, in which the soul is. Now, what we need to remember is that this intermediate state, uh, the state after death and before the resurrection, is, is only temporary, right? It's temporary because of the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And not only his resurrection, but also the promise of his return, which makes any person who has gone on and, and their soul is either with God or not, wherever they are, uh, either in the presence of God or not in his presence, they are in a temporary state. So paradise is the word we use to describe the state of souls absent from the body and present with Christ. But what I'm saying is they're not going to continue in that state forever because when Jesus comes, their bodies will be raised and they will be reunited with their souls to live for eternity, right? To live uh, in, in, the, in the new age, the age that has no end, in the new heavens and, and the new earth. So scripture teaches us that the righteous will have a, um, a resurrected body, uh, a transfigured body, uh, an incorruptible body, where they will live a bodily existence in a transfigured, renewed and redeemed creation. Now, likewise, Hades or hell is what we call the state of souls who are absent from the body, but still mired in sin. And again, that existence is also temporary because when Jesus appears, Scripture tells us that they too will be raised from the dead. All of humanity will be raised from the dead, body and soul reunited to uh, experience for those who are in a, in a, a state which we call Hades. Uh, scripture says they will go on to experience um, eternal condemnation. Now, 
as I mentioned uh, um, in one of the talks, I believe there really is a, a, an element we have to take note of over here. And that is that, that some of those in Hades, and, and maybe even a significant portion, will receive mercy before the judgment seat of Jesus. When it comes to the final judgment, I really do believe that there will be those who, who receive mercy. And I believe that our prayers have something to do with that. And I spoke a bit, little bit about that in the first message of the series. Uh, two weeks ago, we spoke about judgment. We, we spoke about this final judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, um, that every, every one of us is going to appear before uh, the judgment seat of Christ. And that we will all give an account of the way that we've lived our lives before God. Um, you know, I, I was I was thinking a little bit more about that after um, that message when when I shared it. I just I was just thinking a little bit more about you know what it, what it means to live your life before God. You know, I, I was raised with this idea that uh, once you get saved, um, you know, once you've prayed a particular prayer to God. Uh, you've repented of your sins, you've asked him to be the Lord of your life, you've trusted him for your salvation. I, I was raised to believe, you know, that once I'd done that, I, I'd effectively, you know, my salvation was secure. You know, I was, I, I'd effectively got my ticket to heaven. Uh, it's pretty much what I, what, I was, what I was told. You know, salvation is yours, you've got it, you can't lose it no matter what you do. And I was also told that if I really did have it, that there would be changes in my life, that I I wouldn't live an evil life, and and probably the worst that could happen to me was that I could uh, backslide. It's not a word we use or hear too much these days, but I don't know if you've ever heard that word. But you know that's the worst that could happen to you. You could backslide. You, you're still saved, but backslidden. In other words, still a Christian. You know, got your ticket to heaven, but just not living right. So, one of the questions I began to have in my early twenties was, okay, if if I really do have my salvation, you know, it, that, that it's wrapped up, it's, it's, it's taken care of. Uh, if assurance of salvation means absolute certainty of salvation, right, guaranteed. The kind of questions I was asking myself, well, you know, if, if, if I'm saved and it's, you know, it's a done deal, then really, why do I need to go to church on a regular basis? You know, why is that necessary? Uh, why, why do I need to participate in the life of the church? These are the questions I was asking. What, what am I actually accomplishing by that? And, and also, at that time of my life, I was, I was asking myself, do I really have to stick to the, the strict moral guidelines of Scripture? Right? I, mean, I mean, why? Now, it wasn't because I had this inner impulse to do evil things. You know, I, I, I wasn't going to go off and taste the wild side. But... To be honest, there were definitely moral temptations that I struggled with. There were things that I wanted to do, and I didn't really see the harm in them. You know, even though I'd been told that, you know, according to Scripture, that's not the way you should conduct yourself. I was told that those were wrong. But I was like in the back of my mind thinking, but, I've, but I'm saved. I've got my salvation sorted, right? So if I do it this one time, or even if I've got a pattern of this in my life, well, you know, what's the harm? There's no actual risk. And so I honestly lived my life thinking, I'm saved. So, so do I really have to, really, do I have to read the Bible? You know, do I, do I have to go to church? Do I, do I have to have Christian friends? Do I really have to tell other people about Jesus and share my Christian faith? And if I'm honest, you know, in my 20s, I, I, I considered myself to be a Christian, but I ignored a lot of these things. 
Um, and, and I don't think anyone would have been able to tell that I was a Christian by the way I was living my life. In my mind, I was thinking, I'm saved. But really, uh, if anybody was had to do a, an assessment of me, you know, they, I don't think they would have given me a tick to say, yeah, that guy's a Christian. And, and so I lived my life because, you know, I didn't think that any of that actually had any critical effect in my, in my Christian life. But after my wife and I got married, um, you know, Debbie and I, uh, we began to wrestle with some questions about, about the Christian faith. You know, I, I, I um, was asking myself, what, what, what was I supposed to be doing as a Christian? Is there something to do? Is there something more to what it means to, to truly follow Jesus? And so I began to read a lot more. I began to talk to some other Christians, uh, mature, faithful believers, because I wanted answers. And what I discovered was this. I discovered that life is supposed to be about repentance. That repentance is not a one-time moment. Because that's what I've been taught. Repentance is a, is a one-time thing. You say that prayer, you repent, you're, you're good. No, I, I, I came to a deeper understanding that repentance is an ongoing process. That, that my life, the one that I'm living right now, is for repentance. And I tell you, that was revolutionary for me. It, it made me get way more serious about God and my life before Him. Starting with my inner life, I, I began to read scripture a lot more, began to meditate on that. I, I, would, I began to engage in conversation right, with God, spending time in prayer, uh, regular worship. Um, uh, I, I, I made it a habit um, to, to be in church every week. Uh, and then that began to work itself out in my actions and, and my deeds and, and my behavior with every human being that I encountered. And I still do a lot of reflecting, um, and, and as a result, I'm you know I'm continually repenting. I'm I'm continually readjusting my life to to the standard of 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 Jesus, to 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 living for Him, to following His commandments. And I I do this because I mess up all the time, and I honestly want my life to be set right. I want my life to be formed in the likeness of Jesus. So I've come to the realization that, that everything that I do is critical. Everything. Everything I do is critical. And so repentance for everything that I've done and everything that I do is important. In fact, it's of permanent importance. Because repentance means that everything matters. That it's all going to be carried with me into eternity. That it all becomes permanent. But the thing about repentance is that it's confined to this life, which is why it is important now, which is why it has bearing on my life now. Because the whole shape of my life is what's going to be carried forward. You know, I, th I think, like me, many Christians have been badly taught about what repentance is. We tend to think of it as how you feel, you know, um, or something that you agree with, you know, you, 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 you give mental assent to. So repentance is not really tied to actually doing something. Uh, it's, it's not strongly tied to living a certain way and doing certain things. And I think it comes down to this idea that faith is, is something that's separate to works. 
<laughs> which is what we're told about salvation, right? And, and that is correct in part. There's nothing that I can do to earn salvation. It is by God's grace alone. But, um, but we completely forget about good works, which are integral to faith. When you remove good works from faith so that faith is a thing and work, works is another thing, it's a separate thing, then essentially what faith becomes is, is just kind of like this, uh, you know, yeah, I agree with God and I agree with these things. It's intellectual assent plus feelings maybe. Feelings of love or loyalty, you know, or whatever because of something you've agreed to. And so what, we've, what we have in a lot of churches now is this idea that you just have to believe in Jesus, Right? You just have to believe in Jesus and that he died for you. And so repentance to uh, um, a large extent is reduced to a feeling. Well, you know, I kind of feel bad about what I said or the way I'm living or what I've done. So, you know, I'm going to say sorry and I'll accept Jesus into my life. And in a lot of churches, that's, you know, um, people come to that point by uh, perhaps a a message which, which raises those emotions. And so... People will go, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept Christ. And, and, and that for them is repentance. But beyond that, for so many people, their life just continues as normal, stumbling forward with the same old problems, the same old behaviors and actions. You know, people still living for themselves primarily, you know, maybe for their family and a few friends as well, but, but that's it. And so who Jesus was and, and who he is, that he died for me and how that worked, and what it means and the role of the Holy Spirit in my life, what it means to love my neighbor, it's just not that important. And to be honest with you, that was me. That was me. But I had got it wrong because there has to be change. Repentance means you've got to make change. Living a life of repentance is not just about feeling bad about sin. It's about reordering your life to do what Jesus teaches you to do. Uh, feelings, really, they only have any value if they're related to our actions. Uh, th- there's got to be action in our life. Feelings really are valueless if they're not uh, um, followed through by doing something. You know, if someone in, in our church has a spouse pass away, you sitting in your house and feeling bad for them, it's not going to do anything for those people. But if you go and make some food, and bring it over to their house, that's going to do something for them. And you are actually doing something for them. And when you do that for them, and you go over there with the food, and you eat the food with them, then there will be obviously feelings and emotions that go along with that. But then that's going to be valuable, because they are accompanying what you are actually doing. (laughs) You see, repentance is about repairing and healing the damage that we've done to ourselves and to other people and the world around us because of sin. It, it's about reordering our lives. It's about setting things right. Living for God in everything. And that requires a body. Because repentance is confined to this life. And so it matters because who I am now is going to be carried into eternity where everything becomes permanent. Once you die, the state of who you are is permanent. That's why repentance is something we need to take seriously. So when I read Leviticus 11.44 or 1 Peter 1.16, that I'm to be holy as God is holy. Or when I read in Romans 8.29 or 1 Corinthians 11.1 or Philippians 2.5 or other places, 
that I'm to be Christ-like, right? That his nature, that the nature of Jesus must be formed in me. I take it seriously because in the long term, God is going to look at me to see if his likeness has been formed in me. Being saved is to become like Jesus. Let me just say that again. Being saved is to become like Jesus. And you can't be saved without repentance because repentance is the process of being saved. Salvation is not a status that you receive at the end. Salvation is about becoming more like Jesus Christ. And that is what will determine our eternal destiny. And so let's just take a look at that for a little bit. You know, we're talking here now about after the day of the Lord, after the last judgment, after the resurrection of, of all the dead, after the glorious appearing of Jesus. What comes after that? Well, firstly, I think what we often call heaven and, and, and what we often call hell now, um, those intermediate state places, they're going to cease to exist because there's going to be a new heaven, right? Not just a new earth, but new heavens. Isaiah uh, uh, talks about a purification of the heavens in Isaiah twenty four twenty one. He says that in that day, the Lord will punish the fallen angels in the heavens. In that day, the Lord will punish the fallen angels in the heavens and the proud rulers of the nations on earth. And, and Isaiah is dealing here with spiritual powers, evil spiritual powers. So what scripture is telling us is that there's going to be a new purified heavens and a new earth. But then uh, in terms of Hades or hell, you know, you get Revelation 20 verse 14, where it says that death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, and John writes that this will be the second death, the lake of fire. So uh, Hades is going to be gone. Uh, heaven as we know it is going to be gone. Or paradise and Hades, heaven and hell as we know it now is, is going to be gone. So let's, let's take a look at what comes after that. And I think we should start by, by looking at what comes after that for those who are going to experience... Uh, the condemnation of the age to come, right? The, the age that has no end. Let's look at some of the language that the Bible uses. You know, a lot of people, they like to think of the Old Testament as the, the fire and brimstone part of the Bible. But there's language for eternal condemnation in the New Testament as well. And, and it has some pretty frightening imagery. Uh, the imagery that, we, that, we, that uh, we, we read in the New Testament describes... Uh, an experience that is very difficult to describe. Um, but it's trying to get a message across. We're, we're not supposed to like it. We're not supposed to be comfortable uh, with it, you know, which is kind of the point. And so the purpose of the language is to present eternal condemnation as a, as a terrifying possibility to be avoided. And, and, and the Bible does that to motivate us. One of the primary images for eternal condemnation is the lake of fire. You know, I'm sure you might have heard uh, about the lake of fire. Uh, and, and I think you know, this, this, this imagery of a lake of fire is why a lot of depictions of hell uh, have, you know, you read these comic books and books and then they have these depictions of hell or people will, will um, draw a cartoon of it. Um, and it's, it has people standing like in lava pits with flames coming out of the ground, you know, getting poked in the butt by a demon with a pitchfork. But but the lake of fire is not meant to convey that imagery. The, the imagery really is of being thrown into a fire, not a, not a place that has, has fire in it. Uh, in Revelation, this comes up 
as you might expect, um, right at the end in Revelation 19 and 20. And I'm going to read from uh, chapter 20, verse 10. It says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And it says that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the beast, the false prophet, the devil, all of the demonic powers all get chucked into the lake of fire. And along with them, if you read chapter 19, are those who receive the mark of the beast, right? meaning those humans who've joined with the demonic powers in their rebellion against God, those who hated God. Now, this fire language is, is used in other places as well, like in Matthew, specifically Matthew 24, where Jesus says, um, uh, um, oh, sorry, Matthew 25, where Jesus says in verse 41, he says that, he says, you that are accursed, Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so this is at the end of the parable of the sheep and the goats. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. Um, Depart from me, Jesus says, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's quite interesting here that Jesus says that the fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his messengers. Meaning not for humans, right? I mean, the purpose of the lake of fire was not for humans. So the humans who end up there will be because they've decided to sign on with the devil. They've decided to team up with the devil and his angels, the devil and his messengers. That's how they end up there. So we might ask ourselves, well, what is this fire? Well, we're not talking about like literal material fire where people are literally set on fire. Because it says that, that all those who get tossed into the lake of fire get tormented forever. And so it was prepared specifically for the devil and his angels to be tormented forever and ever there. Now, I also just need to make this point that the, the devil is, is, is not in charge there. I mean, I think sometimes people think, well, that's where the devil is like in charge. No, no, the devil's not in charge. The devil doesn't get to claim anyone. The devil is a loser. He, he, he does not have a kingdom of any kind. And so this imagery of fire has to do with, with God's holiness. God's holiness. When the wicked come into the presence of God's holiness, it's compared in the scriptures to fire. So this is talking about the experience of the presence of God by those who are confirmed in their wickedness. So for the wicked, for the unrighteous, when they come into the presence of God, that experience for them is going to be one of pain and suffering. That's the imagery that's going on here. So that's fire. The next sort of major image that's used for eternal condemnation is are these words outer darkness. Right? Outer darkness. This is where the weeping and the gnashing of teeth are happening. So this is a term that, that's used by Jesus in, in, in Matthew, um, Matthew 8.12 where uh, we read, the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So those who Jesus came to, the, the Jews, the Israelites, the, the people of God who rejected him, it says the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who've rejected Jesus. In Matthew twenty-two thirteen, again, Jesus telling uh, the parable of the wedding banquet. And, and this guy pitches up, he's there and he's, he's not supposed to be there. And uh, the bridegroom says, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we get this imagery of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Now, yeah, I think we all know what weeping is, but gnashing is not something people tend to think about too much these days. You know, grinding your teeth is what gnashing your teeth is all about. Um, and, and that imagery is used to describe madness, you know, like, like foaming at the mouth kind of thing. Think of the Gerasene who's, who was uh, a demon-possessed, you know, out there in the tombs, naked, you know, cutting his flesh. Or, or think of Nebuchadnezzar being reduced to that sort of mad state. This is, this is that, that imagery. And, and like the lake of fire, the different imagery here is not, is not literal, right? So, I mean, you know, how can outer darkness have a lake of fire in it, right? It, 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 you know, that, that doesn't compute, doesn't work. In fact, I th- you know, from our human perspective, with our pre-resurrection bodies, we really can't understand what it's going to be like. And so what we're given in Scripture is, is this imagery uh, as different metaphors that pertain to our bodily existence now in, in this age. So if, if we had experienced that bodily now, we would understand that that's, that's not something that we would like. So we can't clearly understand what eternal condemnation will look like. But what Scripture is telling us is that this is bad, right? This is, this is something you want no part of. This, this is imagery of terror and madness and suffering. It's, it's, it's bad stuff. Stay away from it, right? That's what the Bible is telling us. Do the other thing. Eternal life is what we want. My last comment on this is that the Bible talks about a second death um, uh, as well, and, or an eternal death. And so when it comes to the first death, the first death is our physical death now in this life. Right? The first death is our physical death. But what do we make of, of the second death? Because it, it appears in, in a number of verses, and I'll just re- refer to two of them. In Revelation 2.11, we read um, that anyone who has an ear uh, to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then John writes, whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. And Revelation 20.14 Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells us that everyone is going to be bodily raised, right? Everyone is going to be bodily raised, the righteous and the unrighteous. So this, this second death can't be eternal physical death because everybody will be resurrected. But it has to mean then some kind of change, some kind of separation from God, some way of being detached from God, like like an eternal separation of the soul from God. You know, the Bible repeatedly urges us um, to have an awareness of idolatry, an awareness of who we should worship and what we shouldn't. Because you become what you worship, don't you? Right? I mean, that, that's what gets reflected in your life. If you worship money or sex or, or power or, or the pleasures of life or anything else, that's what your life is going to be defined by. Right? You worship that. That's, that takes a higher place in your life than God. Your life gets defined by that. And Scripture tells us that the further you go down that road, the more damaging that's going to become. And it's going to damage the image-bearing quality of God in your life. That's what it'll damage not necessarily your own life, but also the lives of others. So, uh, well, sorry, definitely your life, but also the lives of others. 
but essentially that's what happens if you're going to go after other things and worship other things that 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 image bearing quality of god will diminish in your life so scripture is telling us that it's possible for human beings to to go down that road to continue down that road of worshiping the wrong things and we see this in the world around us so many people refusing the goodness of god refusing to live in the light of god and they do that by their own effective choice. And so what Scripture is saying is that ultimately the end of that road will be the second death, a place of eternal destruction where beings that once were human are no longer human, becoming creatures that have ceased to bear the divine image. Nothing of the goodness of God left beyond hope. Existence in an ex-human state no longer reflecting their maker in any meaningful sense. And, and this is why scripture keeps coming back to worshiping God, putting God first, seeking first his righteousness, putting the kingdom above all other things. It's, it's, it's so easy to get sucked into all of these other things uh, of, of this world. But scripture keeps saying, be careful what you worship, because you could land up following that and and landing up in a state where the end is woe it's not life it's 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 eternal death and it is a state where of some kind of separation from god where the goodness of god the image of god is is removed now we shouldn't be put off by any of this because um you know ultimately for for believers it's it's quite simple you know my favorite summary of this is at the end of the book of deuteronomy um You've got these first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses or, or the, the Torah. And God starts by telling the whole story of creation and gives all these commandments. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, this is what we read. God says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. And if you do that, you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as, a, as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, we could ask, well, you know, is this is this just for Israel? You know, isn't this isn't isn't this talking about Israel in that particular moment in time? And I've got to say, yes, but also no, because Jesus says in various places, and and I'll I'll use one John fourteen fifteen. Jesus says, "If you love me, keep my commandments." Those are the words of Jesus. If you love me, keep my commandments, which sounds a lot like what God's saying here in Deuteronomy. In fact, loving God and keeping his commandments are paired together all over scripture. 
Old and New Testament. It's everywhere. If you love God, you keep his commandments. If you love God, you keep his commandments. And again, love here is not about feelings, right? Love is not emotional, wishy-washy stuff. No, love is actions. Love is doing something. Love is actions. Feelings come and go. And so you either continue to act faithfully when those feelings are gone, you know, just like when you were acting faithfully when those feelings were there at their strongest, you either continue to act faithfully or you don't, despite the feelings. Because in the end, this is what will separate people. Loving God, living for God, is not a choice you make once in your life. It's not a choice you make in your head. The choice to love God and live for God is a pattern that emerges in your behavior over a lifetime. Whether you're faithful to Jesus or not, whether you actually love the Lord your God or not, is going to be visible. It's going to be manifest in the way you live your life, in your behavior, in what you do. And so really, it's a decision that's constituted by a thousand smaller decisions. So a person who refuses to repent, a person who refuses to worship God, a person who refuses to love God and their neighbor, the person who refuses to do that is making the choice to reject the offer of life that God has extended to that person. And here's the thing about God. God does not force his love on people. He just doesn't because that wouldn't be love. So eternal condemnation becomes a possibility because of the love of God and because of his offer of life to everyone because it's possible for a person to reject it. And so eternal condemnation exists as this future possibility, this horrible possibility, a terrifying possibility when you read the way it's described in scriptures, but it's a possibility nonetheless. But we can't end on that note. Um, we just can't because the New Testament refuses to end there. So let's go to Revelation 21. John says this in verses 3 through to 5. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. This, this majestic ending, but also this mysterious ending of the revelation of John, leaves us with these, these fascinating hints of future purposes. Uh, there are these hints that there's going to be further work to be done. That the new creation is just the beginning. Th that for the righteous, right? For, for the overcomers, for those who took seriously their walk with Jesus, for those who lived for Christ, for those who put him above all things, for those who worshipped him, for the righteous, our resurrected, renewed, incorruptible state. Scripture gives these hints that, you know, that... That's for a purpose. It's, it has a purpose as God originally intended. And so there's a sense that part of the whole point of being saved in the present is so that we can play a vital part in the eternal plan and purpose of God. 
yeah, I, I often look around at how, you know, just how far humanity has come in this age. Uh, I, I, we're living in a time of human progress, honestly, that's breathtaking. And, and I know that as much as anything has the potential for good, so too it has the potential for bad. But I don't think that everything that is good is going to be lost. I don't think that the eradication of all that is evil and sinful and all that is not of God will be lost. Yes, everything is going to be set right. And I think that that the good that's there will remain. And so I think that God has, has <clears throat> on top of the good that's there, way more in store. <clears throat> you know, things that are things that are beyond us right now. Things that no one can conceive of, uh, that no one has ever heard or ever seen, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's just, it's really interesting to me when, when you read that, you just think, yeah, it's not like you're going to get a cloud and a, and, a, and a harp to play on a, <laughs> in, in some kind of state of bliss. It's No, 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 the new creation, it will be a new beginning. It'll be, there'll be plenty to do. Um, it's interesting as well, you know, the description of the New Jerusalem in, in chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation it makes it clear that some categories of people are, are outside. John says the dogs, the sorcerers, the fornicators, those who, who, who lie and speak, don't speak the truth. Um, and and, and you know, we read this as well. And just when we have in our mind that there are two places, that there are insiders and outsiders, we find that the river uh, of the water of life flows out of the city. That growing on the side of the river on either side is the tree of life. That the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations. And we also read that that those, uh, even though the gates to the city are open, there will be those who, who will not want to come back, who will not want to come through those gates. So there's a there's a lot of mystery here. And, and, uh, and I think we have to make room for that mystery when we speak about God's eventual future for the righteous. And um, we've got to remember that God can be surprising. Yeah, I don't think we should doubt the reality of the final judgment. Um, I truly believe that those who've bowed down to worship and serve the idols that dehumanize us and deface God's world, those those will those people will depart from the presence of God, no longer bearing His image and likeness. Uh, to use the imagery uh, the imagery of John in Revelation, that even though the, those gates to the city are open, they still not want to come. They still not want to come in. They won't want to come in having become something less than an image bearer of the creator. So right now, we all have a choice. Um, to have eternal life in this age and the age to come, to, to live and to truly exist, to have meaning and purpose, that's to come to know God in the person of Jesus Christ now and to be in right relationship with other human beings and the whole created order Salvation is definitely not something static. It is an eternal movement towards God in which a human person will eventually be established forever at the judgment seat of Christ in the day of his glorious appearing. The question for all of us is, are you going to worship the creator God? Are you going to discover what it means to become truly human, reflecting the powerful, healing, transformative love of God into the world? Or are you going to worship the things of this world? Going after those things and increasing your corruptible humanness, chasing power or pleasure or you know or whatever it is that you place before God, just further dehumanizing yourself, diminishing any likeness of Jesus within you. And you know, that way of life, that way of living, 
will drain all meaning and purpose from your life. And in the end, it results in self-imposed suffering, established again forever at the judgment seat of Christ in the day of his appearing. To be eternally cut off from Christ and his kingdom represents the ultimate loss of humanity. Uh, to cease to exist in any meaningful or purposeful way as a human. You know, life, uh, existence, meaning, purpose, those are the constituent elements of what it means to be a human being. Uh, to come to know God in Christ, uh, to receive eternal life, you know, becoming like Jesus, that's to become truly human. And that's why I try to live a repentant life. Why I try to live for God in everything. So that even now, in this life, God can begin to reshape and reform me in His image and likeness as I prepare for what's to come. And I sincerely hope that you have decided to do the same. Mm -hmm.